Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Hello and welcome to Law in the Family, brought to you by the Family Law Section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. I'm Aaron Weems, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Hoover. Today we welcome Shelly Grossman, a partner with Potts Shoemaker and Grossman in Westchester, and Carolyn Zack, a partner with Monge and Andrew in Philadelphia, to discuss the use of arbitration in family law cases. Welcome to you both, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So um, we talked a little bit before the show opened about the increasing prevalence of private arbitration, but I thought we could start with talking about the concept generally. I think uh, a lot of attorneys are familiar with alternative dispute resolution concepts. They probably practice some, whether they realize it or not. But if you could walk us through a little bit about what is arbitration and how it differs from the litigation we may be traditionally accustomed to. Sure. So again, thanks again for inviting Carolyn and I to this um, process. So arbitration, actually, most lawyers who practice family law arbitrate and don't, probably don't even realize it. When you go in front of a hearing officer or a conciliator, in essence, they're arbitrators. They're making recommendations that they're making decisions and recommendations. The difference between that and arbitration is that parties will be hiring their own arbitrator. So they're hiring their judge to make generally a binding decision over whatever issues they submit to the arbitrator, whether it's the whole case or portions of a case or portions of issues. There generally is no appeal. Um, Usually that's one of the benefits of arbitration and the parties are paying an arbitrator to, to arbitrate and make decisions and it's usually a much more efficient process. Let's talk a little bit about that efficiency because I, I think that when we think about a family law case, I think we all do have in our minds sort of a, a the gestation process of that case, how long it's going to take, discovery and things like that. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of the efficiencies that can be gained by going through arbitration? So in terms of the efficiency of arbitration, although you're paying an arbitrator, which is yet another lawyer, usually it's a lawyer or it could be somebody else to get through the process, they're able to get through it faster in terms of they don't, when the the arbitrator schedules things when everyone's available. It is, I call it user-friendly. The dates are set up when everyone's available. Sometimes it's via Zoom, sometimes it's in person, and there's no waiting around the courthouse hallways for your case to be called. The arbitrator schedules your particular proceeding at that time. In addition, if there's interim issues that come up, you know, no one needs to file or prepare a petition. You send an email to the arbitrator, copying the other side. We have a discovery issue. Can you conference this? And the arbitrator will hear from everyone. And then within a couple of days, we'll issue a directive resolving the issue. So that saves lots of time, lots of money and builds in efficiencies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I heard you say discovery. You know, that's something that I've heard from other attorneys before say, well, we can't take this matter to arbitration because we first need to do discovery. Carolyn, why don't you talk about, you know, things that can get done in arbitration? Okay, sure, Anthony. Um, you know, discovery is available in arbitration just like it's available in court adjudicative matter. So I view, just like Shelley said, um, the efficiency of the process is being able to take your litigation out, outside of the courtroom. It's really a private litigation 
process where the arbitrator has the same authority as would a judge or a master to recommend discovery and then also to make a binding decision regarding discovery, including sanctions. All of that is available in the private arbitration setting. I mean, anything that can't be arbitrated, I mean, just generally. I mean, I know, you know, different attorneys have different ideas about what can be submitted to arbitration. Anything that generally shy away from or that can't be handled in that regard? Yeah, there are a few different types of matters that should probably not go to arbitration. There are some that can't be arbitrated. For example, the arbitrator is not able to make a status determination like enter a divorce decree or terminate parental rights or issue a decree about the validity of the marriage. Those types of status determinations must still be court adjudicated. There are other types of matters that the parties will have to think long and hard about going to arbitration on. Those are cases where there might be a request for relocation, for example, a primary physical custody dispute, or a novel area of law where it's important (laughs) that the parties retain their appeal rights on the substantive issues in case the uh, matter doesn't go their way. Getting specifically, I mean, just what are some great cases? I mean, just when when we're just at top of mind, they're thinking, all right, th- this is one that makes the most sense to go through arbitration. I mean, I mean, again, I know broad is great, but I mean, is there just a top couple examples that really benefit from this process? So I, I'll start. Um, just the one that comes to mind was a really complex, significant. Uh, This was an equitable distribution um, case that probably would have taken weeks to litigate in the court system. The parties were unable to reach an agreement. They had tried. So it was definitely going to be litigated and a decision needed to be made. And with counsel, we were able to schedule, instead of having weeks of trial, we had four days of arbitration proceedings. And for each day, we specifically set the agenda for which issues were going to be addressed on which day. And um, those parties got through the arbitration process in a matter of months instead of years. And that's remarkable. I mean, you said weeks, you know, in in the areas in which I practice in the state. I cannot say that there'd be a divorce hearing officer that would give me weeks, right, of of straight days. That just wouldn't happen. And I'll say when I was a hearing officer, I think my longest trial was 16 days. And that was stretched over. I, I can't remember how long it took to try that case. And I say those cases were comparable because my writing, I wrote a decision on both of those and they're about the, they were the same, about 98, 100 pages. You know, something like that where you have complex issues, you often find that that, that where you've got a situation where there could be sort of the, the Venn diagram overlaps between an equitable distribution issue and a support issue. And you find that arbitration is a more efficient way to deal with those those types of issues that where you may you would otherwise be going first to support to try to figure out that portion of it. And then it would be then at that point, you finally check that box and you can finally get over to equitable distribution because you've resolved your asset slash income issue. Is that something that arbitration is able to blend together or or deal with in a consolidated fashion? That's a great point, Aaron. You know, one of the benefits of arbitration is being able to consolidate all the issues that you want to have adjudicated. So certainly child support, spousal support, alibi. As you said, many of the issues involve determination overlap. And the arbitrator, who will be someone experienced in family law because the parties are are choosing that person, will be in a good position to make um, an informed and a reliable determination on those issues. And it really obviates the need to go down the different paths of 
you know, a child support proceeding before one hearing officer, an equitable distribution proceeding before another hearing officer, which happens in most counties. So that, again, as Shelley said, really promotes the efficiency of the process. And we've been talking efficiency. I mean, again, another thing, I mean, that I'm aware of, confidentiality. You know, so I'm an employer. Uh, say I have 1,200 employees. I'm going through a divorce. Can I stop any one of my 1,200 employees from going down the courthouse over their lunch break to look at my file? Can, can I stop that? I mean, I can't, <laughs> right? I, I don't know. I mean, just Carolyn or, or Shelly, any comment on that? I, I mean, yeah, you know, the arbitration is completely confidential. It's private. Um, the parties determine the location, um, whether it's, you know, in someone's office or in a private courtroom or, or something like that. There's generally no record. Again, the parties kind of determine with the arbitrator what the proceeding will be like. Um, I've had some issues that have come up confidentiality where there are, you know, questionable tax practices and reporting or questionable use of PPP money. And so it is a and, and neither party wants that reported because, you know, it, it affects both of them. Um, so arbitration is a, is a protected environment for that. Just as an anecdote, I've had a few prenuptial agreements involving uh, intellectual property and trade secrets, the, the potential trade secrets. And one of the things that we've been building into that are binding confidential binding arbitration. So that way in the equitable distribution pleadings and things of that nature, there won't be this, the details that would be necessary to adjudicate the case, but they won't be available and they continue to be protected. So that's just an anecdote I wanted to mention because I do think the confidentiality piece is really a great advantage. I think there's a built-in advantage too, Aaron and Anthony, with having your litigation in a conference room, private setting, as opposed to a courtroom where people can come in and out. I think that, you know, it takes some of the um, animosity out of the room because everyone's there. It's it's a rather intimate environment with just the arbitrator, the parties, their counsel, and maybe an expert or two. In my experience, having just that small setting where issues are getting resolved, heard efficiently, efficiently um, helps everyone just feel better about the process. And at the end of the day, they might leave, you know, on even better terms than they started. And sometimes, you know, breakfast is served and, you know, you take a lunch break and lunch is served and food always makes everyone feel a little bit better about the process. (laughs) What I wanted to kind of get into a little bit is uh, because you had mentioned before about usually, you know, typically, or you should have an arbitrator as family law experience. Why don't you talk a little bit about the qualifications that an attorney or a party would be looking for in an arbitrator? And if there's any guidance uh, that they could look to to try to make sure that the person they're selecting is qualified to do the job. So in some states, um, there are certain requirements or qualifications that an arbitrator be a lawyer or retired judge. In Pennsylvania, we don't currently have specific family law arbitration legislation. So an arbitrator could be anyone the parties choose is appropriate. It could be their therapist, it could be their priest, their rabbi, or a lawyer. Um, There might be a specific expert or an accountant who might have specific expertise to deal with a specific issue in a case. And maybe that arbitrator is appointed for that one specific issue rather than an entire case. But the parties are generally free to agree to appoint whoever they they want at at this point in, in time, who they trust, who's fair, who has the professionalism necessary to adjudicate their disputes. Before we get too deep into the podcast, because I want to make sure we talk about it, I mean, the legislation. There's legislation that I, I know you've been working on. Before we get too deep, tell us about that 
and, and tell us how that's going to help us out. Sure, I'd be glad to do that. Shelley and I are on a task force that emanated from the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section during the pandemic. And the task force met to discuss how we could help cases get through the process more efficiently when everything was shut down. And arbitration was what we thought going to be a great advantage to these people who were really waiting for the case to be called. The task force went about preparing draft legislation based on the Uniform Family Law Arbitration Act, which is a uniform act approved by the, among other entities, the American Bar Association, and came up with this draft act that really went pretty quickly through the process of being approved, first by the family law section, then by the Pennsylvania Bar Association, and then submitted to the House of Representatives, where it was voted 199 to zero in favor last November. Now it sits in the Senate Judiciary Committee, where we hope it will get a favorable recommendation. And there does not seem to be any controversy about this bill. It really does seem to be generally favorable. And we're really hoping that it gets passed in the near future. Some of the items that in this legislation, I think that'll be helpful. I mean, for example, I know, you know, some family law practitioners that are getting into maybe arbitration for the first time. They have not looked at an arbitration agreement, right? I mean, there are things out there in the litigation world that are generally and, and normally arbitrated. Family law is, I would say, well, it's often preferable. It's often, it's not the norm, you know, at least in our area in central Pennsylvania. Um, I know maybe different on the eastern side of the state. But what would this legislation do for folks who maybe aren't, you know, comfortable or used to it so far? I mean, what's in there? I can start and Shelly, please chime in. Well, among other things, what it does, Anthony, is it fills in the gaps of the commercial arbitration statute relating to family law. Because right now, Common law arbitration has been eradicated since July 1, 2019, except for certain agreements that were made before then to go under common law arbitration. And in family law, we were generally doing common law arbitration before that legislation was passed. So we're left with this commercial statute that has no provision relating to family law and in particular, no requirement that substantive law be applied. So that, to me, is really the key of this family law um, arbitration legislation, that parties will have reliability that if they go to an arbitrator, that the arbitrator will apply the substantive family law of our commonwealth. And that's very important, as you all know, you know, with these very unique and very um, high stakes family law issues. Another thing that the arbitration statute does is it provides protections that we have under our existing case law for child-related issues. For example, a binding arbitration award under the PAFLAA will be reviewed by a judge on a child-related issue to make sure that it's consistent with the child's best interest. So again, that's another built-in protection that the commercial statute just doesn't have. And another provision is that there will be protections for uh, suspected child abuse or domestic violence. And those protections will require that the arbitrator stay the proceedings and have a court adjudicate that you know, there are protections in place before any arbitration would occur. All of these things are meant to give parties the reliability that if they go to an arbitration, it will be a safe and a fair setting. Shelley, anything to add there? Yeah, the only other thing I'm thinking is that the, um, the UFLAA also requires the certain disclosure requirements, that the arbitrator disclose any relationships with counsel. Is counsel who are coming before you as an arbitrator also an opposing counsel in another divorce litigation case? How many other arbitration cases, mediation cases, parenting coordination cases does the arbitrator have with the lawyers or the law firms involved so that 
when the parties are selecting their arbitrator, they have full knowledge knowing everyone's involvement in other and so, things. And so with that, so those people that may be listening to this and considering becoming an arbitrator, that's a good practice point that you're going to need to maintain your conflicts lists and really be on point with your record keeping to make sure that you can provide that information to potential parties. Correct. One thing that I, I think is also in, again, in the pending legislation is also the outline of, a, of an arbitration agreement. And again, to make things, I would suppose, I mean, more uniform throughout the state, which is something that is often challenging in family law, right, where different counties will have different procedures. I mean, that's just the, the nature of litigating, I think, probably not only family law in Pennsylvania, you know, got to love the Commonwealth system that we have here. Right. Yeah, that's um, a good point, Anthony. The Uniform Arbitration Act, as applied in the family law context, really gives the parameters of what the parties will do, like a checklist, if you will. This is what you need to do up front. The agreement to arbitrate needs to include these certain provisions. And then, you know, the arbitration process needs to include, uh, as, as Shelley said, there has to be certain procedures in place. It gives the framework, if you will, for the family law arbitration so that there will be some consistency even if you go, you know, so there will still be forum shopping, of course, choosing the particular arbitrator, but the process should be generally consistent no matter who you choose. We've been talking about a lot of good things. I guess I'm going to ask something that's possibly good and bad about it is the right to appeal. Clarify that. And I'm curious as because I don't have this memorized. I mean, just the standard to try to do something with an arbitrator. Anyway, either Shelley or Carolyn, talk about just appeal of an arbitrator's decision. Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned, arbitration is generally a voluntary process and the parties define what's going to be involved, whether it's going to be binding or non-binding. You can have a non-binding arbitration, but most people who go down the arbitration path prefer it to be binding because they know that it will end the litigation. There'll be a decision. They will have been heard. Their decision will be thoughtful that they receive and then they move forward with the rest of their lives. Um, for some people, it's really difficult to give up the right to appeal or they might have issues. There are issues that could be law changing, so they, they might want to be able to appeal it. And also on child related issues such as custody and child support, the court always maintains jurisdiction over those. So to the extent those are ever binding, the court can always review what the arbitrator did as in the best interest of the child. I wanted to add to what Shelley said that under the PAFLAA, we included the requirement that there be a record of the um, child-related findings so that it could be reviewed by the court. And that's the only aspect of arbitration that requires a record. All of the other aspects of arbitration would be off the record, so to speak, unless the arbitrator and the parties choose to do that. And just so we know, so not not child or support related, equitable distribution, division of assets and debts in a divorce or determination of alimony, council fees, things like that. What is the standard, I mean, for appeal? I know it's very, very, very narrow. Carolyn or Shelley, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, I'd be happy to um, talk about that. Really, it's limited, Anthony, to defects in the process. So if you look at you know, the process as being guaranteed um, to be fair, defects of the process would be um, failure to notify the parties about the arbitration hearing, failure to consider all of the issues, or going outside of the scope of the agreement to arbitrate. Those are some of the reasons why an arbitration award would be reviewable, but they are very narrow and they're really limited to defects in the process. And let me just, if I could just add on to that, this isn't necessarily the appealability, but reconsideration. So most agreements to arbitrate will allow for a period, usually about 20 days, for parties to present, I'll call it a motion, 
for reconsideration. Or sometimes it's just a letter that outlines terms for reconsideration where the arbitrator can either reconsider or really fix mistakes, mathematical mistakes, or something that that, that's not right in the award. Yeah, and I want to add that that's a great point, Shelley, that there's that reconsideration and then it's done. So the nice one of the beauties of arbitration, one of the real benefits is that parties have closure. In most cases, Shelley and I found as hearing officers that the parties just want to have their day in court. Well, as an arbitration process, they're going to have their day in an arbitration hearing and then they're done. They get their decision. Generally, they're you know pleased with it, but if they're not pleased with it entirely, they can live with it. And there's no fear of ongoing litigation promulgated by the other spouse to continue to cost fees. It will be over. And along those lines of sort of the continuation of fees and things like that, in the role as an arbitrator, you also have the authority and discretion to also sanction if need be. Can you talk a little bit about in the arbitration process, what might constitute bad faith? What might constitute sanctionable behavior by a party? Sure. For example, failure to comply with discovery failure to to pay support. So as an arbitrator, we do not have the same, an arbitrator doesn't have the same teeth that the judge does. We can't find someone in contempt or uh, imprison them. But for example, we can put on a sanction of a per diem fee for every day, documentation, discoveries outstanding, so-and-so shall pay $25 per day for every day, or counsel fees or some other sanction. But the court is still available for enforcement of that if it has to go that next step. And I guess that's the one thing that just occurred to me is we're talking about the rules of arbitration, arbitration agreements. Those are essentially contracts. So if, or not essentially, they are contracts. So if you have within your contract that there's the authority to sanction, you levy a sanction against somebody for some reason. Again, like you said, you don't have the ability to put them in jail. There's no bailiff that's going to be in that arbitration room. But the other party could then go ahead and petition the court for enforcement and to levy those more punitive sanctions against the offending parties. Do I have that right? You got it. Yeah. Another benefit of the Pennsylvania Family Law Arbitration Act is it lays out this authority very clearly. It already exists under the commercial statute, but as it pertains to family law, we know that disclosures and other kinds of required procedures are very important to make sure that the parties have a fair outcome. And the arbitrator has the ability to issue sanctions, to issue subpoenas, to order depositions, and to preclude a party from offering evidence as a very severe sanction in the event of non-compliance. So it's all laid out there. That's another reason that we would like to see that act passed. All right. Well, any kind of closing thoughts, you know, just parting thoughts, either or Shelley or, or Carolyn about the arbitration process or just when attorneys or even parties are, are thinking about, yeah, let's take this case to arbitration. Carolyn, we'll start with you first. Sure. Um, I think arbitration is really gaining steam. We've seen that the UFLAA has been adopted in four states already, and it's been considered now in four others, including Pennsylvania. Our arbitration as a concept in Pennsylvania is gaining momentum. We think that the proposed Family Law Arbitration Act will help people both be educated about it as well as have a framework that they can rely on in conducting arbitration. So we're hoping that that will make it gain even more interest and appeal statewide. But in the eastern part of the state in particular, that's where Shelley and I practice, we have seen a growing number of arbitrations. And it's been very effective from my standpoint in helping people avoid the delays that are inherent in the court processes. 
you know, one of the problems that the court has, and it's no fault of their own, is that the pro se numbers are increasing. With financial um, straits as they are and getting worse, more and more pro se's are in the system and they need the court's attention and they need the court's resources. So how do private parties handle that? What alternatives do they have? They can choose someone to get their issues resolved without having to wait or to pay for multiple hearings in front of a judge. And that's a real benefit. And I'll just supplement what Carolyn said by um, offering this, that at least in Montgomery County and hopefully some other counties, there is um, sub-movement in providing um, pro bono arbitration services for parties who are in the system who might not be able to afford an arbitrator. They could have debt. They might have minimal assets. They might have personal property that needs to be divided and they really can't afford the process in terms of the court process because there's oftentimes filing fees for the appointment of a hearing officer, but they need decisions made. So there is a, a, a very lively ad hoc subcommittee in Montgomery County with many people who are interested in serving as arbitrators on a pro bono basis to assist in those cases. And my other closing thought about arbitration generally is just how user-friendly it is. That it is usually a less formal proceeding depending on the style of the arbitrator. People don't have to find parking at the courthouse and get lost in a courthouse. Um, it's a more comfortable setting. And again, the scheduling is as works for the parties in counsel, not based on the arbitrator or a judge's scheduling. And so and everything else kind of flows from a more user friendly place. Excellent summary, Shelley and, and Carolyn. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us here today again. And all this listeners, I hope you join us on the next episode here of the Law and the Family podcast by the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thank you. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash lawinthefamily. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.